Princess Rise for their Majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! All right, you know what time it is? It is time for another episode of Royally Obsessed, and I'm your co-host, Roberta. I'm your other co-host, Rachel. And of course, you already know that you should be following us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. You should also be sporting our cute corgi covered merch that's shop.royallyobsessed.com there's tote bags for back to school there's sweatshirts for the weather which will get chilly eventually hopefully rachel what is on tap for today it's a great lineup roberta the queen has to take the cake and be front of the list uh she's back in action we saw her for the first time since july which was exhilarating wonderful a new pm we're going to talk about that megan and harry are back in the uk and the cambridges are officially at windsor we also have some crown casting news and we're joined by Sam McAllister, author of the new book, Scoops, behind the scenes of the BBC's most shocking interviews. Of course, we know which shocking interview we are going to be discussing. That's what's coming up. Prince Andrew and Newsnight, big deal there. All right, well, while we catch up, and now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail. Really quickly, I wanted to sip a scotch in honor yes. of the Braemar Games, which I don't feel like we got to cover at all. But I think it's funny that, you know, Charles and Anne, those photos, they look so happy and so carefree and like, I know. there's not Anne. so much else going on in the world. So <laughs> And just keeping on, keeping on. She just is like doing the work <laughs> yeah. with all the Cheers. drama around her sometimes. Oh, wait, tell me how your birthday weekend was and a long weekend. Well, my birthday was phenomenal, but because of one person, and that is you, Roberta <laughs> sent me a card. She had it delivered to Maine, and she listed 40 reasons that I am like amazing which is i'm just this is her words 40 the for fact 40 that you could think of 40 reasons like i i oh said my gosh, to rachel <laughs> i like scratched the tip of the ice cream i was That's blown like- away and i said i joked to roberta i already said this i'm repeating myself but i was like i told my family i told my husband no one can top what roberta just gifted me Stop. oh no i bet <laughs> it was there was so special that was so me- kind of you oh oh my gosh rachel you like deserve that <laughs> and so much more tell me everything so you had a low-key beach weekend yeah it was fine. We just were at the beach in Maine. It was exactly what I wanted. I feel like it was just that it's where we go in Maine is just my absolute happy place. And there's, it's a great place to just disconnect. How was your Labor Day weekend, Roberta? It was nice. It was really nice. Um, I, don't know if anyone can hear it, but I picked up a little head cold from my nephew. Ugh. Of course, being kids. around kids, I feel like that's the first thing that happens is the like germiest creatures. Yeah, exactly. But Aww. it was so much fun. And we had like a pool party every day, basically, friends and family. So it was a great Labor Day. And Dave was here, which was really nice oh. in Florida. So I'm just yeah. excited I get to see you next week because we will be in person. Not for the, not necessarily for the recording, but we will have uh, some opportunities based on Pure Wow. So I'm very excited. Our company offsite. Can't wait. All right. While we are sipping our scotchy scotch scotch, here is a <laughs> note from Brigitte. She says, back from a very Diana tour of London, my husband and I were married in 2020. So we put off our honeymoon a few times and ultimately decided to do an August 2022 trip to England and Ireland. I'm so glad we did. We got to visit and tour four palaces, had afternoon tea at Claridge's, all those lovely things. But the unexpected highlight of the trip was staying in Earl's Court. We were not far from Diana's flat on 
Colhorn Court. Staying in the neighborhood that she lived in made me think about her life before Charles. Did she go to the same pubs we went to? Did she hop on and off the tube like us at Earl's Court Station? I would love to think so. Thanks for always keeping me inspired and up to date on royal happenings and events. I've been a listener since day one. God save the pod. That sounds like an amazing trip. I'm so jealous. I want to get away again. I feel like Paris was a month ago now, and it just feels like that I, I need to be back. And yeah, I'm you so need jealous it on the of calendar. your trip that's coming up. I was going to say, you know what's so funny when I think about the UK going to the location of Diana's old flat is one of the top things on my list. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it really just feels like this sort of sacred space. So I love that uh, Bridget was able to go. Yeah. All right. Well, this week in royal history. This week in royal history. We thought this would be kind of a fun one because tis the season, tis the week that the royals are headed back to school. Based on our recording time, we don't know yet if the Cam's Cambridges are going to be releasing an official photo, back to school pics as George, Charlotte, and Louis head to Lambrook on Thursday as anticipated. But so we thought it would be fun to flash back to other royal first day of school moments. And there's tons and tons of online galleries that everyone needs to prioritize. We'll try to share some links if we can or on Instagram. But I think what was most fascinating to me was as the time goes on, you really see that you have photos of Prince Edward, for example, being dropped off for the first day of school in 1968 by his nanny. But then two decades later, there's Charles and Diana doing the drop-off together. And we for sure know that William and Kate do their best to do it together. There was a hiccup with that when Kate had severe morning sickness in 2017, and she obviously had to skip because she was pregnant with Louis. But I think just the evolution of the role of the royal parent is so interesting when you look through these old images. It's so fun to see the pictures that you dropped in here. I love the Edward photo. He is (laughs) so cute. The photos are just incredible. And I think that that's my other, the other thing that I really had a fun time looking back at is just how the kids' styles have evolved. We know that they are mostly in uniform based on the protocols of the schools that they attend. And we, I think what is unique is that we see, say, George, and it feels modern. But when you look back at some of the images of, you know, say, Eugenie and Beatrice or, um, you know, William and Harry, of course, they're just so darling and very, you know, kind of dated feeling, but in a very classic way. And I think that the mom style is actually more interesting than the kid fashion. Yeah, the Diana styles. I mean, going to school drop-off in a pencil skirt belt and button down. Diana looks so chic for the drop-off. What do you wear when you drop them off? Well, I was laughing about it. I was like, maybe I need a mood board in my apartment of (laughs) Diana's style. I was like looking back at just her sweaters and maybe I could just channel it. All of us could channel it just by wearing like say the sheep sweater or the rowing blazers. I am a luxury sweater, things like that. But I think, you know, she just did pencil skirts, midi skirts so well And then she had just mom jeans as well. So I just, I don't know. I'm going to put extra effort in. I wanted to mention a few hiccups that popped up in photos over the years. Harry's Choice, you will, you got to Google when they were dropped off at Weatherby in 1989. Harry skipped the backpack. He has a giant sack and there's a lot of like, there's no explanation. (laughs) William has a backpack right next to him. Harry's got a big sack. I approve. I love it. I hope it was a big choice that Harry demanded he make. And then also when Eugenie and Beatrice were dropped off, Fergie had that label maker. As all of us parents know, that is a must. 
You got to get the labels. Everything has to be labeled. So I just, I like seeing that. I don't but, get uh, why Fergie has to do sailor theme for school drop well, I thought that maybe just with like, that was something where she was on brand with Andrew's like military. Naval. Naval. Yeah. It's a little I don't know, bit it felt, odd. Every sailor jacket that she wears to But also, year. wasn't Nautical so huge in the 80s? That's like, true. I feel like it just feels... It's so fascinating. Those photos are We know gold. she has a costume closet, so she's obviously got at least one sailor jacket, if not more. Yeah. And we do know that the Cambridges moved officially to Windsor this past weekend. Kate was actually spotted back in London shopping at uh, Peter Jones with George, I believe, maybe for back to school. Uh, so I think it's just, fa- you know, they really have a whole new life ahead of them. And she was spotted driving around Windsor too, right? Yes, driving around Windsor as well. I thought she had major like suburban mom energy in some of those pictures. Of course, how challenging to be photographed behind the wheel. Like we've seen some of that with Megan on the tour. It's like they somehow still look so incredible. If you had a photo of either of us behind the wheel, I'd probably like have my mouth again. Like I just wouldn't look good. (laughs) Be like, I don't know. Don't want to think about it. The least flattering of all time. Um, I think that's interesting, too, going back to Megan's mention of school drop-off and how challenging that was for her to be surrounded by photographers while she was potentially dropping Archie off at school there. But it it does kind of raises some questions in my mind about how Kate and William Mann should do it. Do they make a deal behind the scenes? It's like, okay, you get the first day and then you guys get to back off. And how do they actually adhere to that? I think that's really interesting. Well, because I was looking back as well. And if we get a photo from the Cambridges, I'm pretty sure it's one that they release. I don't remember it ever being a photo call. And then we really don't see the kids getting dropped off. I actually think there were a ton more moments where Diana was photographed dropping off William and Harry over the, you know, during that era. But I imagine paparazzi is a whole different beast, but I do think the Cambridges must have some agreement to prevent that. I'm not sure. They definitely do. I know that images have been on Getty in past years. So there definitely is like a, some sort of um, like, yeah, you can be there at the first day, but then I think they're allowed to do whatever they want the rest of the year, it seems like, because they do do the school drop-off. We know that from yeah. secondhand sources. So, Well, I love the idea of a shot of the three kids together. And honorable mention for Royal History, Pippa Middleton turned 39 on September 6th this week. So her last year of her 30th, 30s Happy decade. Happy birthday, Pippa. And she has a new little one there. So that's Ugh. exciting. And I know you're excited for school starting next week. Oh Finally. Finally. Counting the days. <laughs> All right. Well, our first news of the week is that there is a lot going on in the UK with the Sussexes. So and not just the UK, Germany as well. So Meghan and Harry touched down over the weekend in England. They started off their pseudo royal tour in Manchester. Then they were in Germany on Tuesday in Dusseldorf. And next up will be Wellchild the day this episode airs on Thursday. They're going to the Wellchild Award Ceremony. I wanted to talk about quickly that last year's Well Child, too. Remember, it was the paparazzi chase between Harry yes. and the photographers that really set him off. And that's what spurred this kind of row with the UK government over security. And they're still in litigation over that. It's also very poignant because Harry's been patron of Well Child for 
15 years since 2007. So it's a very meaningful patronage of his. So we'll look out for that. But we wanted to talk about Megan's fashion. So I think the overall theme of this trip is that they are royal rule breakers. And here's why. Yes, totally. Right after Labor Day, first of all, because she had the all white uh, Brandon Maxwell and a nine bing outfit in Dusseldorf. We also got that red outfit, which is just such a power color, especially on her. I feel like that's very um, striking for her all head to toe. And I love like the sash undone, which continues that vibe from archetypes. And the sustainable brand. It's After Tomorrow is the name of it. And it was actually started by a woman who worked at Morgan Stanley shout out Dave, for 15 years. (laughs) And it's farm to fashion is what, so um, this woman is, has created a brand that's very sustainably minded and the wool is straight from Tasmania. You can see who's farmed it. It's, um, it's really interesting concept. And then, um, you know, the Royal rule breaker trend continues because I think what the pictures on Getty showed us of Megan and Harry's time in Dusseldorf is so many selfies, which is kind of this like fake protocol rule that they're not allowed to take selfies. The Royals aren't. And Megan is posing with people left and right. And I think that that's kind of maybe just a call out to those people that are like, you know, breaking royal protocol. It's it's funny to see her do that. And also and even the bare shoulders, too. With yeah. the other look, I feel like that was, you know, more bold. I think she looks fantastic. And I love that it sort of almost dovetails with her second wedding look as well. Yeah. We're also getting some flashbacks to her time. So she's been a one young world counselor since 2014 and she called out those early days and here is a clip from her speech and there I was I was the girl from suits and I was surrounded by world leaders humanitarians prime ministers and activists that I had such a deep and long-standing respect and admiration for and I was invited to pull up a seat at the table. I was so overwhelmed by this experience. I think, I think I even saved my little paper place card that said my name on it. Um, Just proof, proof that I was there and proof that I belonged. So for me, the the Sussex era post-royal is either about before their time as royals or after, but they've really largely kind of ignored the two years or one and a half years of being royal in favor of, I mean, Megan had a very full life before she met Harry and is now, you know, kind of doing this charitable work after that continues what she had started there. And so I think that they're trying to kind of not touch too much on the royal aspect of it when they're in public. Obviously, she did in the cut interview and she has in archetypes, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it's interesting. I wanted to talk about, you know, there is no mention of them seeing the queen, Charles, William, Kate, And I liked this from Tom Sykes of the Daily Beast. He said, what a sad indictment of all parties that would be if they couldn't see each other. I mean, they're 150 meters from each other at Frogmore, at least for the time being that they're staying in England. So what do you think about them not having any contact, being so close? Well, I really liked Omid's piece for Yahoo about it. I think it is really sad to 
imagine being that close because we used we were like, oh, COVID, the pandemic really created that separation. I think what now that they're so close, it feels surreal that they wouldn't see each other. And I bet individually it feels really off as siblings, right? Um, but I do think that it sounds a little bit like again, according to Omid, that the Sussexes made their itinerary. It was very packed. They don't want to be away from their children very long and perhaps didn't even reach out to the Cambridges is how I read it. Is that how you took it? Exactly. Like it's neither party is shunning the other per se, but it also sounds like neither brother can forgive the other. And so they're kind of at a stalemate where they're not talking because they feel that they – like the other one needs to be the bigger person. And that's why I really struggle with something that Megan said in the cut interview. She said, this is her quote. I think forgiveness is really important. It takes a lot more energy to not forgive, but it takes a lot of effort to forgive. I've really made an active effort, especially knowing I can say anything. That to me seems like they, they, one of them needs to be the bigger person. And she, I, I, she maybe needs to prod Harry in that direction or Kate needs, but someone needs to come to the table because from what Omen said, it sounds like neither one is willing to just reach out. Well, and I agree. I think that those like NDA comments would make, that's a little bit, when you read that in the cut, you're like, eee, that feels a little scary. But I do Mm -hmm. feel, I totally agree. And I always bring it back to like my own sibling dynamics. And I know like I see William, like the older sibling as being incredibly like hard-nosed and stubborn, guilty. I definitely do that to my sister. And I see my sister, the younger one, i.e. Harry, as having this like incredible steel where if I, if she feels that I made a mistake, she will like I will not talk to her for weeks until I reach out and apologize. And if neither William or Harry are willing to cross that bridge and make that that olive branch, all the metaphors, analogies, everything you could say, like, yes, a lot of bad stuff went down, but you they need to like be in a room. They need to start the conversations, I guess. Yeah, I'm the same. My older brother and I are five years apart and we totally – get in these like little spats all the time but it's so uncomfortable to be at odds with each other that we no matter what at the end of the day say we're sorry or reconcile or something and it just I can't imagine to be so physically close I mean this is the longest time they the brothers have spent on the same in the same area since 2019 and they're a stone's throw away. They're basically next door and they can't come together. I think the other interesting part before we move on is um, the book is finished. Omid yes. has revealed that the book is done, that everyone knows in the family that the book is done. And so it's not about the memoir. A lot of the stories and headlines about the brothers' disagreements are about what will Harry write in the memoir. Well, it is written. And I'm not sure if he's told them any of it, but it's done. I cannot wait for it to come out. But I still feel like trust issues exist because, and that's on both sides because you have mm-hmm. like Jason Kanoff still in the mix for William and Kate, and you have these, you know, royal revelations that keep trickling out from Harry and Meghan. So I think that that's also like, again, whether the memoir is finished or not, like it feels like it's hard to have a safe space for both of them. Exactly. Both sides, I guess. Oh, all right. I feel so invested. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I feel like I said I would leave with this and now we're just, we're, you know, ending the news updates with this. But the queen, we got to see her. She officially invited Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, to form a government this week. So this is the first time we've seen the queen in public since July. We saw her then at the opening of the Thames Hospice. That was, 
I mean, well over a month ago. Also, this is the 15th prime minister that the queen has appointed, which just speaks to wild. the history that she has witnessed. And, you know, we get into this a little bit coming up in our interview with Sam, but just like, why? I just want to sit and talk with the queen and hear all the stories she has to tell. The big news, of course, was that this took place at Balmoral in Scotland. This is the first time that it's ever not been done at Buckingham Palace. And there was um, some updates that she's had a recent within the last few weeks, change in her mobility that's left her resting more. And they wanted to just have schedule certainty. And that's why they committed to Balmoral. The room that they, the room where it happened, there were no personal <laughs> photos. You didn't have like anyone that could dissect the photos of Phil, Philip perhaps, but no Harry and Meghan, all of that, that was removed. There was a roaring fire. I checked the weather because I was like, I'm picturing how it's still kind of warm here yeah. and I keep hearing about heat waves, but it was about 56. So she was dressed appropriately, the tartan skirt, her pearls. I love that pop of lip color. I actually meant to do that for you today and I forgot. I'm sorry, Roberta. You look um, gorgeous, but how did you no think she what? looked? What was your, you know, were you like I I love the Scottish shout outs of course I lived in Scotland for a year so it's a place that's very close to my heart and I think she looked I mean expression and emotion wise happy but she looked so thin to me I thought she just looked so much smaller than when we saw her even in July and you know, her hands are really bruised. That happens, though, with old age. Um, and a lot of people were speculating, like, did she have an IV or something? That just happens. I think we've yeah. actually seen that in a lot of photos of her from thins. the whole – yeah. Yeah, even, like, a year ago. So I don't know. I thought she looked really kind of frail and not doing so well. But what do you think? I mean, I was torn because I think she just – any frailness was made up with what from photos seemed this real warmth to me that projected it might be you know how her team like you know makeup I have no idea but she just looked very her smile was so radiant I don't know I I'm just like impressed by her consistently I know you are too I felt happy that she could have someone come to her and not and and yes, also to do be it spending, on your terms. Yeah, yeah. The place uh, you know Balmoral of course is one of the places that she's the most happy is what you know, her granddaughters revealed. So I think that that's something that um, makes me happy that she's able to be 96 and enjoy Scotland and Balmoral and the Highlands and everything. So yeah, and we know she's headed back to Windsor Castle this month and supposedly will continue to have weekly virtual audiences with Liz. So she's keeping up with the duty. And then be very close to William and Kate for the first time living at least what will that very be close like? to That's them. great too. Yeah. Okay, and now our interview with Sam McAllister. Here's that conversation. Rose, this week we're welcoming Sam McAllister, author of the brand new book, Scoops, Behind the Scenes of the BBC's Most Shocking Interviews, out next week. You know which one is the most shocking to us within the royal sphere, of course. Sam is the woman that clinched the 2019 Newsnight interview with Prince Andrew, which has been described as a, quote, plane crashing into an oil tanker, causing a tsunami, triggering a nuclear explosion. We all are certainly familiar with that broadcast. On that note, (laughs) welcome, Sam. I think that's a generous description, don't you? I think it went even worse than that. It really, it really was just awful to watch. I rewatched it ahead of you coming on. I I just, it's like, it really is like a bomb that keeps exploding. So we wanted to jump right in and ask you, 
With that final negotiation that you had with Prince Andrew, what was your impression of him when you guys first sat down? Well, it's really interesting to me, the impression that other people have in comparison to the impression that I had from meeting him directly. Because my background, as you guys will have read, is that I used to be a criminal defense barrister, as we call it here, that dead horse hair on the wig thing going on, all that Victorian look. So I'm always used to meeting people and having basically a blank sheet because I had to treat clients that way. So when I met Prince Andrew, although I've had 40-something, let's not go there, years of him in my country, kind of knowing him, you have to go in with a blank sheet. Because if you don't, then obviously he's going to feel prejudged. He's going to feel that the journalism is not going to be fair. And he's going to feel that he doesn't want to work with us. So I took it from basically back to the beginning and all the things that you would think about if you were dealing with just a normal person, like, was he friendly? Yes. Did he have nice manners towards us? Yes. Was he polite? Yes. Was he congenial? Absolutely. Did he turn up on time? Yes, he did. Did he have a good sense of humour? Absolutely, was some of the things I said in that negotiation. So his frankness, his sense of humour, his openness, all there in that negotiation the wider issue of what's he like as a human in terms of litigation and the terrible accusations that were being made against him, obviously a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. But he seemed very ready to talk. Like that was when you were in the final stages of that. And then the biggest surprise was that Beatrice actually joined. And were you, I mean, that was a total curveball. That was like a next level curveball because I'm like a meticulous researcher. Negotiation seems a simple thing, but it really isn't. So I like game it in my own head. You know, he says this, I say that. My mum had worked for Robert Maxwell. Was I going to mention that? My background as a criminal lawyer, would that help me or not help me? Should I lead with humour or intellect? Like a million little calibrations, but not one of those calibrations allowed for that moment where he came round the corner and he goes, oh, by the way, I hope you don't mind. I mean, who can mind? It's Prince Andrew in Buckingham Palace. Um, I brought someone with me and I thought lawyer. It's all over. Instead, round the corner, Princess Beatrice. Now, imagine in that split second going from discussing these very sensitive, terrible accusations with, you know, a 50-something-year-old man face to face, and now we've got his daughter in the room. And that was the curveball of curveballs in my entire career by no shadow of a doubt. Yeah. What was she like in that meeting? I mean, you were really getting into the nitty gritty of what would be discussed. Was she playing an active role in those conversations? Yeah. So interestingly, we don't really discuss what's going to be discussed because there's a kind of merry dance that goes on with our journalism because Mm -hmm. we don't provide questions. We Mm -hmm. don't do conditions. So you kind of like toy around the edges. Um, But really, she was, I think, a very impressive young woman. She was there as a daughter rather than a princess. One who no doubt has had to, you know, deal with a high profile father with these awful accusations against him and one who has to live a life, you know, in the public eye. And this was quite a private setting, but very exposing because you've got three journalists in the room and you know your dad might do an extremely important, effectively for him, kind of life or death-ish kind of interview. If it goes well, he could be back in the public sphere. If it goes badly, he could be condemned always. And I think she realized the importance of that. She was super polite, super easy to deal with and asked very sensible questions. And you presumed that she had quite a bit of influence on her father. 
Yeah, I mean, my view of it was kind of twofold because I researched him, obviously, is that I knew she was a very, very nice young woman. I you know, knew people who knew her and said she was congenial, easy to deal with. And I knew something really important about her, which I didn't know she was going to be there. But I knew <laughs> she, was, she was very close to the Queen. So in my imaginary scenario after this conversation, in another imaginary scenario where he goes to talk to the Queen about it, you can just imagine from his kind of boisterous personality and how he's perceived to be the favourite son um, that he kind of goes, Mom, it's the best idea ever. You know, I must do it. And then the Queen would turn to Princess Beatrice, the sensible one, if you like, yeah. in that situation. And I felt that her answer was actually crucial. So that's why I describe her in the book as the rainmaker. Because mm. if she had said no, game over, in my view, because I think the Queen would have respected her more circumspect response to us, just beyond belief. Yeah, so fascinating to have a family member and have her in the room as well. Yeah, what sort of questions did Beatrice ask you? Did she ask you pointed questions as well? Yeah, so she had, I've been, I've tried in the book to have this line between telling you what I said, which I'm comfortable with, mm -hmm. and being careful with what they said, because I feel, although it may seem kind of strange, given that I've written a book, that there's a difference, if you like, between what she said and what I said. So I can tell you that all her questions were very sensible. They, she had like a checklist, she had like a notepad or something, she was writing her answers down. Very, very good idea to do so, because we all forget, don't we? You guys know. The answers, mm -hmm. 10 seconds later, they're gone from your brain. And she asked sensible, practical questions and the kinds of questions you'd expect a, an intelligent young woman to ask when her father might be doing something this serious. So they were very methodical, good, sensible questions. And I got a very good impression of her, both kind of intellectually, but also in terms of the love that she clearly had for her father, whatever he was accused of, which obviously is the burden of a child in that situation. Right, right. Oh, you mentioned, Sam, that obviously, um, it's, or it's pretty obvious to us as readers that the Queen most likely knew about the interview. I mean, he says he's going to go tell mom after your negotiation and also that one of her people was there right at the beginning as you're setting up the Queen. Um, I think it was her equerry. So what does this tell us about the palace comms team? I mean, is she fully aware that he's doing this and saying this? Or do you think she's pretty much, What what is your impression? I mean, as you exactly say, we'll never know for sure. But there are two strong indicators that lead us to the inference that she at least knew it was happening. Although I might imagine, given that he's like the favorite son, you know, that he probably explained it slightly differently from how the outcome was, right? We all do that you know, mom, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. You can imagine that conversation. So the two pieces of information, absolutely right, Roberta. The first, we get to the end of that negotiation and his final words are, my brain doesn't factor in that this is the queen. We're going to go and speak to mom. Come on, Beatrice. And then your brain kind of like hits in and you're blown away, you know, even as somebody who's been in some very serious situations, that's quite a big deal. And then the second part, as you rightly say, is that there was uh, the Queen's head of communications was there on the day. I thought he was there briefly. I, I believe other sources who um, have been quoted since say that he was there a bit longer. But I certainly only saw him for a brief period of time myself with my own eyes. But he was in the room, whether it was for five minutes or an hour. So clearly he knew about it. 
So I suppose we draw our own inferences as to how much she knew, but certainly we believe that she did know. Was it clear that he, Prince Andrew, I mean, had media training before the interview? I think that the idea of media training and a member of the royal family is a really interesting one, right? Because I don't know if you guys have ever worked for kind of, you know, high profile, kind of like CEOs and that kind of thing. You know, he had what I would call, and I don't mean to be rude, but factually, the royal delusion. Mm. So take a CEO or a CFO or a billionaire or a celebrity and times that by a thousand with all that privilege, that history, a lifetime of being told you're incredible, no work setbacks, no appraisals, you know, you've never had to worry about your energy bill. All those basics that kind of make the rest of us maybe a little bit humble never existed. So I believe he was put through his paces by his extremely able, frankly, chief of staff, uh, Amanda Thirsk. But I suspect the second that camera rolled, ladies, everything he'd been told, gone in a puff because he's Prince Andrew and he's going to say what he wants to say. So I imagine that what they expected he would say as his chief of staff and what he actually said probably there was a big disparity. And I've seen that a lot of times with very powerful people. You see their agent or their chief of staff with their head kind of going, oh my God, what are they saying? Um, She didn't express that in her physical self, but I imagine he was just a law unto himself, literally in this case. Wow. One of the things I think is so interesting too is you point this out in your book, there just seems to be no contrition in any of his answers whatsoever. I mean, He's not sorry for anything. And and you, Emily keeps giving him the chance to kind of apologize or at least, you know, feel some remorse and there's nothing. And so I wonder if you think that's changed at all since the interview. I'm not sure he really un- understands, right? You know, kind of when you get through that interview, you know, I do media training myself and I used to be, you know, a criminal defense lawyer. So with your clients, you get them to understand the very basic thing. You know, you need to say sorry. And you need to express remorse for anybody that you've affected. This is like just the starting point of any conversation like this. And he was unable, as you rightly say, he was given many opportunities. It was almost an hour long. And at the end, very generously, Emily Maitlis, who's a brilliant, brilliant presenter, goes, are you sure there isn't anything else you want to say? Hint, hint, apologize. Say Jeffrey Epstein was a terrible choice of friend, but he never ever gets around to it. And I think that goes back again to that royal delusion, right? Because through fault of his own, and also no fault of his own, he's never had to really take the blame for anything. And I suspect, although he can't have thought it went well, that he would still, if he was talking about that interview, say there were good parts that people didn't appreciate, because that was my impression of his view of his own performance. Right, right. That he thought it went well. 100%. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Was there any backlash at all from the palace after it aired? I know you didn't, you were worried for that, you know, 48 hour period before it actually aired, but was there anyone immediately after it went live once they saw the public response to the interview that reached out, that got in touch about any of it? Well, isn't this the most extraordinary part, Rachel? I did that job for 10 years. People are always kicking off. You know, an agent's kicking off. Someone rings to shout at you. Someone tells you they've lost their job. They threaten to sue you. They call your boss. There's always something, except this time. 
Now, one of the things they say about the royal family is never explain, never complain. And certainly I experienced never complain. I expected us to hear from lawyers. I expected there to be phone calls to powerful people, to powerful people of which I'm not one. But as far as I know, that never happened, which is quite extraordinary in terms of taking on the chin what was clearly not the best decision and a horrendous interview. Yeah. And did you, I know you reached out, did you ever hear back from Amanda in the aftermath, Andrew's secretary? Yeah, we're still in touch. I think that kind of speaks to the difference, which I talk about in the book, between being a producer and being a presenter, right? As a presenter, rightly, your communication with the people you're interviewing with is temporary and often fleeting. But for me, you know, as two women, uh, we'd been in touch for months and months. We'd met many times. We'd spoken. She was an impressive woman, you know, bringing up children on her own. I was bringing up a child on my own. We had similar backgrounds. She had similar education. She'd been in the city in finance. I'd been a criminal defence barrister. So intellectually, although she was definitely more kind of classy and kind of like well-kept than I was, more sort of sophisticated, we were quite similar. So we had a professional friendship. And, you know, that is different from being a presenter and dealing with Prince Andrew. I had that relationship with her and, and we are unbelievably... Imagine the calibre of her as a human, given everything that happened to her as a result of this interview. We are still in touch. Wow. Do you have any regrets at all about the interview? None. I'll tell you why. Because there are different types of people when it comes to interviews. There are people who, through no fault of their own, are in some terrible situation and they don't know what they're dealing with or they do something foolish or they're just kind of, you know, something goes horribly wrong for them. This is somebody who had every possibility, every opportunity, every privilege of education. And we gave him an extremely fair interview. When you look at the questions, I know you've just watched it again recently. These are not cruel or difficult questions. They're not contentious. They're not aggressive. He had every opportunity. And in the negotiation, I said to him, you know the questions, whatever they are, will be fair. And all you can do is give good answers. And he did not yeah. give good answers. So I feel no guilt for the misfortune that he was unable to give good answers. Yeah, that mm-hmm. birthday question when he was like, but it was a shooting weekend. Like, oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. right, out the, right out of the gate, awful. The royal yes. delusion, yeah. Well, Sam, we want to say congrats on the movie news. That's so exciting. Can you tell us anything about the movie? I can tell you a little bit. So we basically, I, I mean, can you imagine? I've never written a book. I'm like, I don't say this to be rude about myself, you know, but I, I haven't, <laughs> I'm a complete nobody effectively, you know, and and now I'm, I've basically been optioned for a movie. So I can tell you that the screenwriter is incredible. He's Peter Moffat. He just finished with Brian Cranston on Your Honor, and now wow. he's stuck with me. He's won loads <laughs> of Emmys. Um, it's an incredible experience putting your tail, which obviously has dramatic license, to another human being. It's not an experience I've had before. So I feel like crazy lucky because it's every author's wildest dream, right, to be optioned for a movie, let alone a first-time author. So fingers crossed it ends up coming to the screen, but the process is 
fascinating and you know I just pinching myself really with the luck that I'm having so far fingers crossed well what about those Hugh Grant casting rumors we can't let that slide by without asking (laughs) you know I would love to tell you that spill the tea as we say um the truth is um at the stage at which he was mentioned casting hadn't begun so I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry to bring it to you. But at the stage at which that was a rumor, it was not a thing. So just kind of spins out. How does that even, I guess, all of our excitement? How does that happen? It just really spins out. And of course, he then understandably refuted it on his Twitter feed. And he has a lot of followers. So then it kept spinning. And then, of course, you know, it just keeps spinning in every conversation and every article since. So, you know, obviously probably quite a pain for him, but hugely sort of, you know, interesting for me to see how one little rumor can now become the thing that everybody thinks might happen. And we don't know who's going to play Prince Andrew yet, but I promise you I'll let you know when I know. Okay, please please do. do. (laughs) I think we could so see Hugh Grant in that role once someone said that. It was like, oh, yeah, that works. Definitely builds the buzz. Yeah, Yes, exactly, exactly. And there is another dramatization about the Newsnight interview coming out, correct? Is there another one in the works? Yeah, that's right. So my uh, presenter, who we now both left the BBC, uh, Emily's brilliant. I mean, you you saw her when you when you watched it. She's fantastic. So separately, I believe she's working on a television drama. I don't know the exact details, but we now have rather hilariously in our UK press things like Battle of the Blondes, you know. <laughs> Good old Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, they exactly. love that. Oh, I love them. They serialize yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Battle of the Blondes, former allies locked in a head-to-head battle. So, you know, it sounds very dramatic, but in truth, this is a very important story. There's a huge hunger for learning about it. And so I hope, you know, people don't have to go to either or watch either. But I hope that people who do engage with them will find them interesting and enjoyable, whether it's mine or whether it's Emily's. Yeah, absolutely. We know that you've moved on from the BBC. So this sort of fun or potentially fun question, but what's the current royal scoop you wish you could land? With all of your booking, producing experience, we'd love to hear what you're kind of have your eye on. Well, obviously the Queen. Who wouldn't want to speak to the Queen? I would love it. I imagine that the Queen is so used to being super sophisticated in the way that she deals with people that she keeps it 100% classy. But I do feel that maybe if she had a Newsnight interview, which obviously is never going to happen, we're just having fun here, hypothesizing. Yes. I I feel she'd probably give us a little bit of a little bit of welly, right? So <laughs> I imagine she would be unable to resist as any parent would protecting their child, a little bit of welly. So um I think <laughs> The Queen is such an extraordinary human, obviously, now in her 96th year. So an interview with her where she was honest would be the interview of the century. Honest about Andrew or about Meghan and Harry or about anything, all of it? You (laughs) name it, Roberta. Like, you know, all the prime ministers. We've got a new one today here in the UK. You know, all the prime ministers she's met, all the people that she's had to shake hands with. You know, her husband who passed, Meghan and Harry, you know, mm-hmm. the situation with Andrew. I mean, you could just talk to her for a year, right? About the things she's seen in her lifetime from world wars to, you know, ends of careers. It must be extraordinary to be inside her circle of trust because what an incredible life she's had and the things she must know. 
Gosh, what a gift that scoop would be. My goodness. Sam, thank you so much for chatting with us. And we will definitely remind our audience, please keep tabs. This book comes out next week. And where can we keep up with your work going forward? Well, we can just stay in touch. And when Perfect. we find out who uh, this is going to be with and who's going to be playing me, I'll be right back on. Maybe I can bring <laughs> Amazing. them with me. Amazing. We would love that. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much you, for Sam. being here. My pleasure. Take care. All right, before we adjourn the Royal Pod, our highs and lows... It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. My low is kind of just a funny instance of Twitter, just Twitter weirdness. So someone on Twitter, they have a handle from 2009, at Liz Truss, and they've come out of hibernation after four years and started tweeting (laughs) and pretending to be the prime minister. And so someone tweeted tagged this person said there must be a way the new prime minister can be appointed via twitter and the queen accidentally appoints at liz truss instead and this person wrote back yes me and queen liz would defo be besties <laughs> defo that's it must great. be weird to have someone impersonating you on twitter i just feel and like how that. do you stop it right it's yeah. like shut this down immediately <laughs> uh amazing all right my low i'm like was that a was that a low or a high we were kind it of might have been a high it. actually it's just that twitter <laughs> like is a weird enjoying that because Milo is definitely a low. Um, The Prince Charles backlash over guest editing the voice really kind of hit a fever pitch. I have to admit that when I first saw the headline weeks ago that it was even happening, I my reaction was that it would be performative. It doesn't feel genuine. I know that he was invited to do it, but I was like, how it, of course there'll be backlash. You know, I think it dovetails with the takeaways from Sam's interview. For me, is Charles like Andrew surrounded by yes men that aren't telling him the blind spots because there was this quote from a piece about the backlash in The Independent that said, a well-placed source told us that some backlash was anticipated during the planning process, but overlooked. It's just, just feels like this, it doesn't feel appropriate, especially when you're not outright apologizing for the role that Britain has played in slavery. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought it was a very odd news tidbit to receive and I'm glad that we waited a little bit and then went over it all right my high if you haven't listened yet you must listen to the newest episode of archetypes no other one the two previous ones have not spoken to me like Mindy Kaling episode has it's called the stigma of the singleton and it's so good I love Mindy Kaling first of all and I love hearing from her and I think it's something I kind of felt like spoke to me just because All Labor Day weekend, my relatives are like, you know, where's the ring? When are you getting engaged? I'm 29. And it's like the pressure is on. Dave and I have dated for four or five years. There is no pressure, Roberta. Please, no. Oh my gosh. It's everyone. And even when I left the room to go do something in the kitchen with my mom, like help her with something, Dave would be hounded. Yes. Like, when are you popping the question? And I think that that's just something where it's like everything they say in the episode, it just. Please listen. It's such a good chat. Megan talking about planning her wedding in high school. It was a requirement as a project. That was a really good soundbite. Also, um, you know, the fact that Harry chose her too. It's not just she chose Harry. So I think that was really interesting. Um, It's a great episode. I love it. Well, I'm here to be the person. If you haven't listened yet, I'm about, I am always trending a little bit behind and I finally had a chance to dive into the Mariah episode. And I was just going to say my favorite part about that was just, I really like how Megan almost did the Dax Shepard thing where she came on after the interview and 
you know, assessed her reaction when Mariah called her a diva. That was just my favorite part of all the episodes I've listened to so far. And I think being able to kind of reevaluate how you felt in a moment and have that sort of narration later on was huge. And I thought, chef's kiss. I loved that. Yeah, it was a great ending. My high, just always the crown. Any tidbit, anything we get, obviously season five is ahead of us, but this just, it's really happening. The modern royals are going to be a part of season six. There was casting news that Meg Bellamy, who is basically an unknown, will play Kate. Fun facts about her, just that, you know, I can't get over this, that she was a former head girl at the state school, St. Crispin's. She previously worked as a dressed up character at a theme park. I just think that that's great. And then you have two Prince Williams. Rufus Camp will play the teenage Prince William, and then Ed McVeigh comes in to play the older version of William. And this will basically focus on his teenage years through meeting Kate, his wife, his future wife, uh, depending on how they depict it in The Crown. I'm just so excited. I'm also really getting nervous about season five because I'm recognizing what exactly it will cover, which is the death of Princess Diana and kind of everything that leads up to that. So anyways, I'm in general just can't believe that's about eight weeks away. That will feel really tough to watch on the screen play out Mm -hmm. as like a dramatization. All right. Just a reminder before we close, leave us a royal rating. Here is a new one. It says one of the best first account interviews with Patrick Jeffson seemed very genuine and honest in his comments. I also feel he related some hidden comments for Megan to learn from Diana's behavior. I felt he highlighted similarities in their challenges with the firm, but that's where the similarities ended. Megan is no Diana and he implied that with his comments. I felt sorry for his departure with Diana and unresolved truths at the time. It's a nice break from all the Sussex drama. Great job, ladies. Well, I'm sure we'll have more Cambridge news next week, and I'm glad that they enjoyed the Patrick. We absolutely love that That conversation. Really good interview. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram and send us an email info at gallerypodcasts.com. Until next week, God God save save the the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.